if I had to pick like one thing that we have wasted too much time as an industry on data classification. Howdy y'all and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. That's Andy Ellis, advisory CISO at Orca Security, YL Ventures operating partner and former CISO at Akamai. He is a CISO about town and as I put it out on the last show, a CISO about the globe. He's back with us on the ranch today talking about board reporting metrics. This is part two of a series where literally last week was the show of part one. This week is show of part two. We are going to continue to tackle this board reporting metrics problem. Last week, we basically started with an article we had found online that we decided to deconstruct, and we ended up picking on it so much I felt guilty. So we're going to switch tactics, and what we're instead going to do is go with questions that were brought in by the LinkedIn crowd. I actually posted this morning and said, hey, if you have any questions for part two, bring them. We got a bunch of responses. I think we have plenty of material here to talk about. So Andy, welcome back to being back to being back to the ranch. Thanks, Alan. I really appreciate it. I took the week and was in Jamaica since I was last here. Oh, Jamaican me jealous. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. I was in Jamaica, but instead I'm here at the ranch. All right, so why don't we just dive into this? We were talking about board reporting metrics. I don't want to bother reviewing a show that was literally last week's show. I'll let you guys listen to part one and get caught up. It was really good. It was really good. We got a lot of great feedback and reviews and a lot of good questions as a result of it too. So I vote we dive straight into them. Carl Said on LinkedIn, he is over at Comerica Bank. He says, what are your favorite vulnerability management metrics? and threat hunting metrics. Now, I've got my answer, but Andy, you go first. (laughs) So for vulnerability management, like really simple. So first one is actually an inventory metric. Do you know all of your systems and do you have them classified by criticality? And for me, criticality is really easy, which is does it have data on it or does it process data in flight? That's your most critical systems. Does it have access to any of the most critical systems? That's your medium tier. Or is it everything else, like your marketing systems? That's your low tier. That's it. High, medium, low, criticality, and maybe you have one criticality for PCI and one for GDPR. But you just have to know what assets are most important. And then for every asset, do you have an SLA? And then how often do you hit the SLA? And the best metric, and I've seen nobody who's done this yet, but I'm I'm hoping that somebody listening will be, oh, I love that metric and I will go implement it even though it's hard work. I want to know how many days in a quarter you are within your SLA. Because the problem is if you report the SLA once a quarter, what you're going to do is look on one day and say, how many open vulnerabilities do I have that are outside the SLA? Which means if people patch the day before, they look fantastic. Every day, you just count if you're inside your SLA or not and how many vulnerabilities are keeping you outside the SLA so you know how close that you have gotten. You need your real-time SLA tracker or mm-hmm. SLA tracker, we'll call it. Then because, you know, you probably have this thing where if people get an approved exception to the SLA, you have like a 10-day SLA, and if they get an exception, you'll extend it to 20, and so now they're not in violation, then you have to count how many of those came in in the last 50% of your SLA window. If you've got 10 days to patch this, and in the first five days you ask for an exception, that's okay. In the second five days, that's an SLA violation. Yep. No, I like that. And we we, we definitely talked about that last time. I think it's a, a very smart and very clever one. Tracking the SLAs over time, super critical. It does stop that point in time lying. Yep. You know, it's not lying, but 
it's lying. You're incentivizing people because you can expect what you inspect. And if I inspect you once every 90 days, then I should expect you to patch once every 90 days. Exactly. Day 89, I am looking good. Yep. And what about the threat hunting piece for you before we switch back over to me? You know, it took me a long time to figure out what threat hunting means. Mm-hmm. And I have decided, and this is my own definition of threat hunting, so you can all feel free to rage on LinkedIn if you think I've got it totally wrong. But threat hunting is actually entirely a defect process. It says we're, the rest of your security controls did not work and an adversary has broken into your systems. And how long does it take you to discover that fact? Mm. Right? And if you automate it, that's not threat hunting anymore. That's now a protective control. So threat hunting is one of the hardest things to measure because it isn't about measuring a control system. It's about measuring your detection of the failures across all of your other control systems by output which is really important. You can't ignore this. So I like dwell time. What's the dwell time that we have figured out once we have found somebody, how long were they there? And how did we find it? Because that will then inform whether or not we want to build a control that might look in that exact same way. Like if we found it, because we did a POC with a vendor and they found 17 things dwelling. Well, maybe that's a good sign that that's a vendor you probably do want to engage with because they found things for you. Yeah, there's nothing cooler than a POC returning real results, right? That always yep. That's always an inspirational moment for me. The dwell time thing, it's interesting. I just did a live panel on board reporting metrics with three other CISOs. There's just board reporting metrics is top of mind, obviously, right now, because this is my third thing in two weeks on it. But we talked about dwell time. The challenge question was, if you could literally only report one metric, what would it be? And I mentioned a buddy of mine, he's now retired, but he was in the defense industry for, you know, I don't know, long, long, long time, same company in the CISO role, which... Long-term CISO tenures, as you know, kind of a rare bird in our industry. Yep. And uh, dwell time was literally the only metric he reported to the board. That's it. He didn't have anything else, just dwell time. Yeah. The problem that I have with that philosophy, though, is either you've got a really bad security program or a really good one, but anywhere in between dwell time is not the only metric you should report. No, absolutely. I'm of the opinion you can't even get there. It, to, to get to the point where that's the only metric you're displaying, you better darn well have a very mature, very robust, and very kick-butt program. because, Or your program is entirely reactive and not at all defensive. Like, Mm. oh, I don't keep adversaries out of my system. I rely on spotting them really fast. Like, okay, fine, then report dwell time. <laughs> but that that's kind of not the way I yeah. would want to run my security program. Yeah, no, no, no. In this case, it was a very mature program. And I was, I, was, I was envious at the time of how mature he had gotten the program and how much confidence he had built with the board to be able to say, yeah, dwell time is all you need to know. And they went, oh, right. okay, cool, we'll go with that. Like, I, yeah. I was now, impressed problem, it. it. was definitely on the maturity side. The problem with measuring dwell time is it can disincentivize you to, from looking. Yeah, Right. It's like, ooh, ooh, I don't necessarily want to go look. In fact, I used to have somebody who worked for me who had a fantastic strategy, not around dwell time, but just about configuration drift, which is a similar problem. And you know, the philosophy that we used to have at Akamai was we would just reinstall our machines. Like every time you were doing a software upgrade, it was actually just a, a full up install over each machine. There's no state on the machines, just blow them away every time. Yep. And the philosophy was if you pave it, you know it's flat. Mm. Like you don't go around patching the ground to like fill in potholes. No, just repave it every single time. Right. Now I feel like living in Massachusetts, that's what they're doing to me right now is like every, where I, every time I turn around, they're repaving a road and it sucks. But if paving is cheap, 
just pave your roads, pave your systems. Yeah. Don't bother looking for dwell time. Well, this is this is why Docker containers are superior to VMs when it comes to drift management. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Just reinstantiate. Right, because you're just like blow it away, put a fresh one in there, you're fine. Nuke it, reinstantiate from the from the current best image, and the best image could change in five seconds, and the next one that comes up is that new image. I mean, it's right. you know that's why Docker I think is preferred to to VMs for that security perspective. All right, so my take on vulnerability management metrics and threat hunting, and remember we're talking in the context of the board here. Right. Vulnerability management, I'm going to say none of the above. Not going to do it. Threat hunting is an interesting one because you know given your definition of threat hunting and the fact that it's sort of revealing like this was my last scratching at the surface after everything else failed. It's important, I think, to bring that forward. I think it's important to say we found ThreatX, and I think it's important to report that for a couple of reasons. One is you're being transparent and you're opening the windows fully to say, hey, these guys were in here and there was, you know, and this ties into the dwell time conversation as yep. well. You know, the bad thing happened. We found it later after the fact. There it was. They were in here for X amount of time and hours. That's a fully transparent CISO, right? And then the other piece of it is, you know, never let a bad situation go to waste. We found three times in a row now the following types of threats. Obviously, we need new controls to address. And obviously, yep. and back to our earlier conversation, it's not the board you're asking for the money to address. But if you go to your CEO and say, the board now knows we've had the same kind of threat three times in a row, and this tool right here solves that threat, you're probably going to get blessed to go buy the tool. Absolutely. And I think another thing that helps here is if you've outsourced some of your threat hunting, right, you have pen testers who are coming in. You want to be able to use their data to talk about how you compare to your peers. Yeah. Because one of the biggest questions I always have is when, if somebody says, well, I haven't found anything, well, is that because there was nothing to find or because you didn't look very well? Yep. So this if you is... engage a third party and they're like, oh, like we have found like this threat group in 80% of our you know, target customers, but not in yours. Well, then it's credible when they didn't find it in mine. But if they've never found that group, then I shouldn't believe that that group is not in my environment. Exactly. And this is this is a pro tip for anybody with a supply chain that processes your data as well. If your supply chain has a breach and the folks in charge of your supply chain breach come to you and say, we have no evidence that your data was exfiltrated. Yes. Your immediate next question should be, does that mean there was no evidence or no evidence of that specific event? Because these are two very distinct things. We have no evidence that the bad thing happened could just be an admission that we have no evidence of anything one way or the other. Yeah. And just for, for everybody listening, same thing applies to all science. We have no evidence that means two very different things. It either means we have strong evidence that the opposite is true, or it means we just have no evidence at all. And this might totally be true. <laughs> right. We don't know. We're just guessing, but we've got an opinion. Yeah. All right. Edward Contreras over at Frostbank. Uh, oh, he I says, love when Edward, Edward gives questions. He's got good ones. Awesome. Okay. He says, I think you should discuss why CISOs must understand the business operating model, what the executives expect to deliver annually on their strategy, and that this should influence the CISO's material and reporting risks that may impact either of those areas. I think he has just nailed what we talked about in part I one think we're really done. here. But this one is really important because I think that CISOs often think of risk against some textbook model Yep. of here's what's important, like go categorize your assets. Yeah. No, go categorize your unacceptable losses. If the business's operating model is to expose user data to partners for better advertising, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Then if you walk in and say, well, there's a risk that we're going to expose user data into our supply chain, nobody cares. Right. Like that risk is already instantiated in the business. Like the business has accepted that risk. 
you can't use that as the sky is falling parable. Right. And that's going to be a problem. Yeah. It's if the you old- actually walked in and said, well, our biggest risk is that we won't be able to share this data with our partners. Everybody's going to pay attention all of a sudden. Right, right, right. It's the old uh, profit-to-risk ratio and loss-of-profit-to-risk ratio is, is yes. really the two risk ratios that should be discussed, right? At the end of the day, that's where the rubber meets the road. The business cares about revenue. That's what the business cares about. And, mm-hmm. you know, top line, bottom line, show me any risk, how it affects top line and bottom line, and I will listen to you talk to me about that risk. Show it against any academic model, any theoretical model, any t- conversation about assets, any conversation about data classification, even you may lose me. Oh, yeah. Data classification is if I had to pick like one thing that we have wasted too much time as an industry on data classification. It's what we talked about on the last show with the SLAs. Nobody meets their SLAs. 30, 40 percent of companies maybe are meeting their SLAs on, mm-hmm. you know, patch management, vuln management, dwell time, mean time to resolve, whatever these various things are. Odds are you're not meeting your SLAs. You have them and you're not meeting them. That becomes the standard and everyone starts to expect it. And no one feels bad when it's violated because it's always violated. I think it's the same thing with data classification. Name anybody who's classified 100% of their data. Yeah. Anybody. Because well, here's the problem. Like, we use arbitrary phrases. Yes. So at Akamai, I like to say we classified almost all of our data, but that's because our classifications were literally Akamai confidential, which was the default. Yes, always. There was public, which meant it had been vetted to be shared with the public. Yep. And then there was restricted, which was an additional classification on confidential, and you had to say who it was restricted to. So you'd say, like, oh, this is Akamai confidential, personnel information restricted to hr there you go right okay. and really simple self-explanatory as you went along you know this is not things like trying to steal top secret and sei from the government right just make it very clean like this is confidential not necessarily because there's anything secret in here but we have not gone through to make sure it won't be embarrassing if it's public yeah 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 i get that i get it three is definitely better than the five models i've seen it's definitely better than the seven models i've seen once I, I can't even imagine trying to live in a world with a seven-tiered classification model. For yeah, data. and you can be ad hoc. You can be like, oh, I need a, a restricted group for we're doing an acquisition. Yep. Okay, we have a named set of people who are over the wall for the acquisition, but it's restricted with the project name of the acquisition, and there's a held list of people who are allowed to see that. Yep. All right, so we went off on our data classification tangent. Back to Edward's comment here, um, executive impact. So we talk about risk to profit and loss, you know, risk to yep. risk to revenue loss, risk to top line and bottom line. Um, this is where you align with the business. You, you need to understand the goals and targets of top line and bottom line. You need to understand the drivers of top line and bottom line. You understand those things as the CISO. You've already got a leg up, right? Yeah. And then you can now talk about risks that are meaningful. Like yes. if you're doing an expansion into, say, China, there's a bunch of risks that just come with that. Mm-hmm. And if you're the CISO and you walk in and say, you can't go into China because I'm not comfortable with the risk, like you're done. Right. Like that conversation basically is over. Yeah. But if instead you walk in and say, are you aware of this risk? Yep. Like RIP might be at risk. We apparently signed a contract where there's a Chinese shell entity that will actually own all of our systems and we lease them back from them and they can take a walk off with their data whenever they want. Are you aware of that? Right. Yes. Great. We've got a presentation. You've signed off that these are your risks. I just want you to add this to your product plan so everybody has to see it and they're your words and not mine. I've done my job. I've made sure you know what the risks are. Right. Odds are they don't know what those risks are. And as soon as you have that conversation, they're like, oh, now what do we do? Mm -hmm. But if you have it as an argument, they're just trying to figure out how they get out of the argument. Right. Not how do they get to a better spot. 
I'm trying to picture the CISO kicking in the door with his badge and his gun going, you can't do this. It's, right. It's, it ain't going to work, as we say in Texas. That dog don't hunt. Yeah, no, I've, I need to write a column on this, which is we are not the defenders. Like I hear this right. phrase a lot in security that you know, we're the defenders of the business. We aren't. Other people defend the business. Yep. We're the consultants who come in and tell you, here's the place where you should put some defense. Here's the place where you should take different risk. And it's this like pernicious mindset we get that says, we know better than you do how to defend the business. Look at the relationship every business has with general counsel. General counsel is there to point out risk. If you don't put this phrase in the contract, if you let them strike that phrase from the contract, if you don't include this thing, if you if you go ahead and agree to that thing, you're incurring some risk. Here's the legal risk you're incurring. This is my advice as general counsel. Take it or leave it. And that's right. the important part. Take it or leave it. Or leave it. I've worked with counsel that where the business had delegated to counsel. Oh, you go write you know, the new you know, non-solicitation agreement for the employees. Right. And what gets written is awful because it's like, oh, yeah. we have decided that we will write something that basically forbids an employee from ever interacting with any of our customers in any fashion ever again. Exactly. Right. No, sorry. You're like, not allowed oh, to do we're a B2B brand. Every consumer brand uses us and we're basically telling our employees they're not allowed to like buy products from our customers. Right. Right. Chris Carter, uh, I should say Umar Carter or Chris, pick one. He's a global ops, AVP, board chair, advisory board member, pro bono, NFP, VCSO, and VCFO. What, what is NFP? Is that like a non-fungible person? Like not, not a non-fungible token? Pro bono, non-fungible person. I think so. All right. Okay. Either way, Chris, a.k.a. Umar, says your time with the board is cut to five minutes. You're supposed to have 30 as kind of the default or 20 in some scenarios, but it's cut to five. What are the top three metrics you present to the board and why? Well, top one is how often does this happen to me? Right. Top, top one slide. It's like a Pac-Man slide. You know, the big pie chart yep. with just this tiny sliver of Pac-Man's mouth is almost completely yeah. or, closed. Or really, you make that a voiceover. I Look, I used to have that happen to me because I was the last topic on the board agenda. Of course. Um, for, you know, for the audit committee, they, other things would always run over and they'd get to the end. And sometimes they didn't have five minutes. I reported and, to my board yesterday, and they actually stayed an hour late to let me in the room. I was yep. last on the agenda yesterday. They stayed an extra hour just so I could come in and do my thing. Yeah, but after just making you know, a subtle comment about it, all of a sudden I was the first item on the board agenda going forward <laughs> for about two years because they were like, no, no, we'd rather you go over and boot some of these other people out. We're tired of of spending too much time on that. But uh, that hysterical. said, that's, that's my tongue-in-cheek answer. You should have a great relationship with somebody on the board if you're going to make that comment. Um, yeah. So look, if you're down to five minutes, I think the important metrics are going to be like, what have you promised to the board last time? And mm -hmm. how have you ex executed on that? Like right. if you've told the board, we're going to fix five risks in the next quarter. First of all, if you've told that to the board, then your board is too tactical. Yes. Right. But if you said, oh, like here's the, the five things we're working on over the next two years, like pop in and say, hey, th these are all on track or yeah. this one is being disrupted because of what's going on. Mm -hmm. the second is not a metric it's actually a current news current events thing. you yep. should just say here's the current event in the industry here's what every CISO is worried about here's how it doesn't apply to us or does apply to us and what we're doing about it if so and what we're going to do about it because yep. that's really the most that's actually in my opinion the most important conversation to have oh, with that, the board if they've only got one question to ask like flip it around that's the one they're going to ask yeah what are you doing about fill in the blank? Solar winds. What are you doing about fill in the blank? Log for J. Especially if they're professional board members who are on multiple other boards, because yes. 
Um, either they got to you first, in which case you want to set the tenor, or they got to somebody else and now you have to unwind them because one of their other companies is a disaster. Right. And they're walking in being, oh my God, I'm, I have two disasters to deal with. Right. And you want to convince them you're not a disaster, assuming, of course, that you're not a disaster. Yep. Yep. No, that's it. All right. So that's two. What's your third? That's two. Ooh, what would be my third one on this one? And this one I go back and forth on because you know, I really want to be able to say, and I, I don't know a board that's willing to hear it yet, which is I want to say, here's the universe of our systems and the possible universe of all the controls we should have over them. And here's how complete we are on that. Like we're never going to get to hundred percent. Right. But are we at least making progress of applying more controls to more systems in a way that I can see that those controls are effective. Yeah, I like that. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Finally, we are gonna be back in person, podcasting, meeting and greeting and doing the things that we do best at RSA. Yes, yes, we're gonna have so many cool events, interviews, meet and greets and all kinds of stuff to be sure you come check us out at the Exonius booth. But for those of you that are at home and enjoying it remotely, you'll be able to tune in, watch the interviews, and hang out with us there as well. Yes, and be sure to check us out at booth number 943 at RSA, and all the content will be available on your favorite streaming platform along with Exonius Plus. Be sure to check out Exonius Plus. Hit the reminder by visiting exonius.com forward slash plus forward slash rsac22. Okay, so my three, I said this before in another panel that we did just earlier in the week. If you're down to one metric and one metric only, I got a buddy that uses dwell time, right? We talked about yep. that. Uh, dwell time's not a bad one if you have a mature program. So that that would maybe be one of my three. But honestly, uh, and Andy may accuse this one of being too tactical, but I'm a big believer in maturity scales. Uh, CMMI, COBIT, ITIL, whatever, for the whole program, you're tracking it. And it's kind of summarizing what you said. We've got this massive wealth of stuff. We've got this massive wealth yep. of controls. What's the ratio of controls to stuff, and is it growing steadily and going? And to me, that's what a maturity metric is reflecting. You're rolling up the the measurement of the efficacy of the entire program itself with a maturity overlay. Now, how you get that maturity overlay, what steps and tactics and tricks you take to deploy it, how you attach it and associate it with the various tactical and operational things that you don't want to get into with the board, mm -hmm. that's a whole nother show right there. But if you can roll that up and say, here's my maturity score, I, I use that. The maturity score I want people to move to is slightly different because there's really two different axes that roll into the maturity score. Mm -hmm. One is what do you do? And the second is how mature is your process for doing that? Yes, that exactly. Right? And the second is the important one, not the first one. Yes. Um, and I actually, I actually can distill it down even more simply how much executive vision or attention is required to keep that process afloat. Oh, that's a good one. Because the more it is, then the less mature you are. Right, right. Like if I've got a process that can report up SLAs to me and I pay zero attention to it, except when somebody walks up and says, hey, Andy, you're doing the board presentation. Here's your number. Then I know that that will run forever until I tamper with it. Yep, yep. But if I have to go disrupt people to get an answer, that is not mature. Like yeah. that process is going to fall apart as soon as I leave the company or I get distracted by another project. You know, that yeah. one's gone because nobody does it without me paying attention right. to it. Well, that's that's the whole vision of cybersecurity performance management. That's it in a nutshell is you yeah. want it to be real time. You want to be able to – you get tapped on the board by the CEO. You get tapped on the board by the board. You get tapped on the board by the audit committee, whatever. You should be able to go clickety-clack, boom, here's the latest. Yep. And, I, and all that I'm doing is surveying a process that works well. 
Like I had this for, for my security awareness compliance training. Because look, everybody, if you're doing security awareness training, odds are you're doing it wrong because you're serving two completely different problems. One is, how do I teach my users to better defend my company, mm -hmm. which should be very tactical programs. Like I want micro spot programs, yep. targeted at appropriate people, like different training for your software engineers than for your executive assistants. Yep. Then you also have to be able to tell all of your auditors that every year everybody gets security awareness training. And that, unfortunately, what happens is we combine those two and we try to create this massive hour and a half long computer-based yeah. training. Everybody hates you. Yep. So my compliance one was a one-page document that said, here's why we care because our customers have this bunch of data. We have a whole bunch of policies. Here's where they are if you would like to go read them. And it is your responsibility if any data comes through any of your systems to make sure you don't screw it up. And here's all of the resources we give to you. Yeah. If you want more information, come talk to us. But click here to acknowledge that we have told you that it's important that you protect data, yep. that it's your responsibility, and we've made resources available to you. And it was a cron job that sent it to people, yeah. and they had to click it once a year. That's it. And then for the actual That's training, it. do actual training. I love it. And and do you know how many humans paid attention to that cron job? None. Zero. None. Like, everybody clicked the link. Now, I mean, but from yeah. a security perspective, yeah. I was the person who, the CISO, spent the most time yeah. on it just because all I had to do was go pull up the number. So I'd That's go to a web page yeah. that showed me the number, and I'd be like, okay, I'm at like 97% have clicked the link. Great. I'm good. It's the point of a cron job. The old Armadillo book from the O'Reilly series, you know, the opening yep. paragraph was the best sysadmins are the lazy ones. They'll automate themselves out of work every chance they get. That's exactly right. it with the cron job. It should be zero. It should be nobody. Yeah. Nobody looks at that. I mean, other than, yep. you know, I guess maybe once every blue moon, you might have to reboot the process or the yeah, box. Yeah, no, I mean, it was on a system that had a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Yeah. So it just like worked in the background with everything else going on. Yep. I think since I left, I think they've worked on replacing it with a computer-based training hour long. Everybody hates it. And I'm like, come on, man. We had right. the system. It was cheap. It was easy. And importantly, it was mature for what it was aiming to do. Okay. All right, so I've done my two. I went with dwell time. I stole that one from yep. my buddy from defense industry. I went with maturity. All right, and now the third one I'm going to say, and you're going to tell me it's too tactical, and I'm going to say it anyway, is the uh, it's the Babe Ruth thing we talked about last show, or Hank Aaron, or whichever one, you know, pointing to the stand and calling your shot. Last time I was before you, I said I was going to blah. I blahed, and here's the results of blah. And just FYI, next time I'm going to blah. That's it. Here's, yep. here's what I said I was going to do. Here's how I done it. Here's what I'm going to do. If you set that so case I, with the board and do that at the risk level, yep. material risk level, the top big important critical risk, if you do it at that level, they get used to this dude executes mm -hmm. and they get used to when this guy says a thing's going to happen, this thing's going to happen. And that's a really good place to have your board. Yeah. And if you're, if you're tight, I think the challenge becomes if you're juggling too many balls mm -hmm. and they're like, well, tell us what all the risks are. Well, you can't execute against all of the risks at once. Right. But they're going to want you to. Right. And so that's where you run into a challenge of this becoming too tactical. Yeah. Yeah. If you just say that, they're like, oh, is that the only risk? And you're like, right. well, I've actually got a pocket of 150. Right. 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 You're opening, you're right. opening the door to potentially way too much. And, and, and back to what we talked about last show, you don't want to be the one encouraging the board to get operational. Right. If the board is going to get operational on their own, that's bad enough. But if you're causing it, then you're causing problems to yourself. And that's all your fault. You should feel oh, ashamed absolutely. and feel like a very bad CISO. All right. Nick McNulty. 
He is a CISSP, GCIH, and GSLC. doesn't say where he is. He says, I'd be interested in discussion of how changes to CISA, FCC, SEC, EO, NIST requirements. He's talking about NIST and SEC and all the new stuff. Towards vulnerabilities are sharpening the reporting and SLA sticks in the VM and the SCA space. This includes the exploitable vulnerability list and increasingly more timely breach reporting requirements. I am going to say for this one, Andy, if you don't mind, I want to table this one. And the reason is this SEC stuff is big. It's impactful. It needs some further research. At rough glance, I'm already unimpressed with it. I get the incentive. I get the drive. I'm pro on those things. But the actual execution, which is not uncommon in these types of scenarios, seems to be a little ooky. There's case law references and some other skeezy outs that are already in there that I, I don't know. I want to I want to do a whole separate show on the new SEC stuff. Where are you at with that one? We could almost do a live reading of it, although, boy, would that be kind of dry and boring. But oh, wow. you know, I went through it the other day, and the same, same very you know, interesting feeling of like, oh, material risk. But we're going to define material as... Well, case law, which is also vague on this one, right? If it would cause somebody to not invest in, not buy your stock, it's material. Like we'll get if, Trisha if Howard on the show. Have you seen her stuff on LinkedIn where she does the dramatic readings of sales letters? No. We'll get her to do the dramatic reading of the new SEC. Oh, that would regs. be that would be fantastic. You know, it's it's a little iffy. Yeah, you know, that said, I think there's there's a lot of conversations to be had here around you know, our comp- do companies have more risk? than they ought to and who really knows that i think that's the question we should actually be talking about as an industry yes and it ties back to what you were talking about on last week's show with just this whole paradigm of what are the risks i'm accepting what are the big risks i know about that i'm either accepting outright or at least temporarily accepting that's more critical to me than 90 percent of this stuff Michael Kislasi also asked maybe how to prepare for the SEC new proposed disclosure. I think we just settled that one. We're going to table that one for another show. Ken LeMay, he is a Cyber Defender board member, lifelong learner, leader, focused on helping clients stay out of the paper. He says, what type of incident would the board like to get an out-of-band notification on? Like what is serious enough that board members should be notified immediately? That's a great question. Okay, let me split this in half because immediately is probably not actually the right out of band and immediately are are two levels right so i think the first question which is when should you notify the board not in the normal reporting cycle oh hey we had an incident i think any time that you're risking public exposure Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that should be board level notification that yep there's a chance we're going to be in the paper and you should know about it before we're going to be in the paper yep because the last thing you want to be is caught flat-footed answering why we're in the paper given that you're on the board now let's talk about timing. All right. So the way that we did incident notifications, we had this concept we called the incident executive, who was usually a vice president level person. And you basically, you did not run the incident. But once the, we knew an incident was bad, what we called a severity one or customer impacting severity twos. Yeah. That you had to basically notify an incident executive. Unfortunately, I was one of them. So I got a lot of these phone calls and explain it to them. And then their job was within 15 minutes, go explain it to the rest of the executive team. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's nice was this separated the incident team from the rest of the executives because every executive is like, well, have you tried this? Right. And so the job was the incident executive would say, well, I'll take that back to the incident team or be able to say, no, no, I know we already tried that. It won't work or it did work or whatever. And so that's a piece of your job. Yeah. And so within 15 minutes, your whole executive team should know if you have a serious incident. Yep. 
if there's a chance that it's going to at all go public, you should now execute the communications sub-thread of your incident management program. Yep. yep. And that's the sub-thread that includes board notification. Exactly. When I was in the data services industry and I was the delivery CISO, I was the CISO over the client estate with thousands and thousands of clients. And mm-hmm. as you can imagine, when you're talking about thousands of shops, the likelihood of an incident occurring is fairly frequent, right? When there's thousands yep. of, you know, for one company, an incident every few months or every year, for thousands of companies, add that up and you'll see it. It's a much more frequent thing. And I got very, very good very quickly at knowing who to escalate to and when and why. And I had written rules, obviously, but but even just instinctively without even looking at the rules, I, I already knew like, oh, yeah, okay, communications processes need to kick in. It's time yep. to invoke these folks. Oh, I need to alert the CEO and my boss or whatever it might be. I had a whole punch list and I just followed it and every incident was different and the board got notified, I think maybe 5% of the time. Yeah, no, it's very, very infrequent. Like yeah. because it's something like, look, Heartbleed comes out, you know, yeah. everybody's going to be asking. You're going to tell the board as an informative. Yeah. Like anything that's industry-wide. Oh, that's the other thing. Even if you're not going to be yeah. personally in the press, yep. if it's an industry-wide incident, yep. you always want to quick brief your board. Hey, here's what you're going to be hearing from us. Likely this one doesn't really impact us badly, but there is a bunch of work we're going to be doing, but we do not expect major repercussions. Like get that out to the board. They love it. Like real simple. Hey, don't worry about this one. We got it under control. Like never hold that one back. Right. If you've got good news that's, that's board impacting. Yeah. Share that good news. And And if you have bad news, well, you'd better tell them now because the, remember the cover up is worse than the crime. If you have bad news, delaying on telling them only makes the news worse. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a big believer in that kind of transparency. And I, you know, I'd bring the CEO in on stuff. Other people would question whether he needed to be brought in or not. And it was because of that anticipatory transparency thing. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out in, in that whole career and all of that, every single thing we ever reported was managed, navigated, and successfully overcome. But I still would alert upstairs anyway. Uh, in yeah. some cases, just because you know what, it could go south, and and it's it's a big enough deal that if it does go south, I'm alerting and I'm invoking, and you know, hey, it turns out it was all cool and we managed it and handled it. Sorry, yeah. To ask. And you know, the trick is, don't be a chicken little when you do that. Like you don't yep. call up and say, "Oh my god, end of the world," but I got it. You say, "This could be a problem. I want to make yep. sure that you're yep. aware of it. We're currently managing it. If we lose control, and here's my five sensors for this one's going really south, I'll come back and let you know." Yep. And then you get a reputation for being calm in a crisis and handling crises. Exactly. Exactly. And if you're alerting on things that turn out to be all good, you're getting a reputation of, like you said, handling it. Matthew Lang, he is also a CISM, a CISA. He is a CISO and a board advisor and a cybersecurity presenter. He says, Alan, I would like to hear about questions from the board after the presentation by the CISO. Questions can show understanding and questions can add to greater understanding by other members. Also, is it the full board or the subcommittee when we have this conversation? That's a really good point. We've been generically saying the board, the board, the board. Very often it's the audit committee. Right. Or the risk committee if or you the have risk one, committee although if those you have are rare. One. Yeah, risk committee. Um, and I've also even seen, believe it or not, privacy and security committee. If you're at a quarterly cadence, it's almost always a subcommittee. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. annual, you might get the full board or maybe as a special presentation, you get the full board. What you should really do is you should monitor the board. And whenever there's a new person on the board, you should give them a presentation. You should onboard every board member. Yes. 
And this goes back to that basic advice of, you know, by the time you've presented your first real presentation in front of the board, you better have already met with every member of that board. If you can possibly achieve it and pull it off, you better have done it. If you have that opportunity and don't take advantage of that opportunity, you are setting yourself up for failure. You should have direct comms to every board member that you can possibly have. And I love that onboarding approach because that makes you the welcoming. That's a great way to intro and create a relationship with them because you're welcoming them and and giving them the lay of the land. That's good stuff. Yep. And then what you should do is you should follow things like NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors or ACCD, or which actually I think it might've just rechanged its name. And you should just every so often watch for the articles they write that, and you can search on like cybersecurity director questions. There you go. And you should know what questions they're going to ask. Like I just went looking and the first thing I pulled up off NACTI was one question is how does remote work affect our risk posture? There so you recognize go. your board members are going to ask that question. Right, right. And you'd better have an answer for it. Or what are we getting for our cybersecurity investments? I hate that question, but it's yeah. there. You're going to have to deal with that. Yep. Are we secure <laughs> for the last show? You're going to get that one sometimes yeah. too. And that's that's now an educational moment where you've got to really step up and show them that's not the right question to ask. Let me show you some dangerous and tricky questions that'll put me in the corner that are the right questions yeah. to ask that put me in the corner instead of the wrong ones. But every time you answer a question, you should write down the answer. Yep. And then when you get a new board member, you should have basically an FAQ that says, hey, by the way, here's all the questions people have ever asked. Here's this nice written 17-page guide to our company. I love it. Welcome. And you can read this prose that says, here's who we are. Here's what we do. Here's common answers to your questions. And I'd love to spend an hour with you after you've read this to see if you have any more questions or what I can you know, yeah. talk to you about. It's very proactive. It puts you in command and it, and it shows you to be a servant leader at the same time. It's brilliant yep. stuff right there. All right, so other questions uh, in addition to NACD and any of the others that they may come up with, the other source of their questions is, as you pointed out earlier, other boards. The odds are great that a board member on a public board is probably a board member on some other public board, and they tend to pass these questions around board to board to board. So being able to predict them, not really there, but if you get hit with one, you you should warn your CISO buddies because they're probably going to get hit with the same questions, right? If if a new one crosses your bow, guaranteed your buddies are going to hear it pretty shortly too. It's going to become the question du jour across all the boards. Yeah. And here's the thing you can do, right? You can get a list of all of the boards that all of your directors are on. You can do it the hard way by looking up yourself, or you just go to whoever is the lawyer that manages the board and ask them for that question. And they'll give you like, here's all the boards they're on. Two things you should do. One, make friends with the CISOs at every one of those locations. So that you hear directly from them and you do the same courtesy to them. Say, Hey, look, if I have to tell my, my director bad news, I'll give you a call and tell you that they're going to show up you know, in your next board meeting, asking you about this specific thing. Cause we had this problem. Exactly. And then you probably already have something like a Google alert set up for breaches at your company or anybody complaining about it, put in Google alerts for all of those companies, any cybersecurity issues at those companies you need to be aware of. All right. I like that. Let's go with Terrence Jackson's question. Terrence is a longtime poster on LinkedIn, really good guy to follow. He says, what's the most impactful CISO board presentation that either of you have witnessed? What was the content? The most impactful board presentation. Now, I'm going to read that as positive or negative, by the way. Yeah. So this is one high-risk strategy Mm -hmm. was never seen by the board. It was the one that had bad news in it that could be averted, delivered to the executive team that was... Here's the current state of where we are. Here's what we would need to do for this to not be true. 
the executive team had been given a very clear call to action. Like, if you don't want the board to see this, here's what you need to change. And they did. Interesting. I like that. That's a good one. Right? You have to be very careful because that is a career-limiting move right Oh, there. yeah. You get to play that card once and once only. This is going yep. before the board unless. But we wanted impactful. Yeah, that's that's like I'll quit unless, right? You, you get to play that right. card maybe once in any given shop. I'm going to bring up a, a related story, which was ethical problem. Let's imagine you're a CISO who has identified a legitimate big material risk that you believe yep. is a glaring deficiency that you have requested to be addressed in the following manner, and that request was denied. And then the next week, there's a board report. You have an obligation as the chief information security officer to report to the board on all outstanding material risks. That's part of your regular and routine presentation. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine you put together your board presentation, which, of course, is viewed by the CEO before it goes to the board. And by the time it's there for the board, you notice that that slide is suspiciously missing from the deck you submitted. Do you or don't you speak up? Ethically, you are obligated to. And believe me, when we talk about impactful, oh, there's going to be some impact with that one. Yep. Talk about career limiting move. That's a tough place to be. And to open your mouth on that one is to have an incredible amount of impact. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tough place to be. And if you find yourself in this place, first of all, I'm not your career coach, nor am I your lawyer. So take this with a grain of salt listeners. Don't surprise everyone in the room. You might have to surprise mm -hmm. some people in the room, but you should go talk to general counsel first. Yes. You should also note that odds are you have to sign a quarterly certification if you're a public company that says you've done the job. If that's not in there, I mean, there is a question, which is, well, you did brief the executive committee, which is the requirement, not that you brief the board. Right. Right. So you can technically say, yep, I briefed the executives. They chose not to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Odds mm -hmm. are you have a mentor on the board. Give them a call and ask for their advice. There you go. Say, hey, I'm not sure what to do here. It feels kind of awkward that... The slide was here. Now, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe that's not appropriate for the board. Yeah. No, and that's that's a really good lesson, that first part you said, which is um, surprises in the boardroom, period, is a bad thing. Yep. I'm going to end us with that one. Surprises in the boardroom are a bad thing. Whether we're talking about impactful things, ethical things, hidden things, revealed things, whatever, surprises in the board is a bad thing. That can, that can be as simple a thing as for the last three quarters, you presented these three metrics, and now suddenly you're presenting a new metric. That's yep. a surprise in the boardroom. Surprises so do in the that. boardroom, bad. If you're going to make changes, back to that developer relationship, have those individual conversations and communications. Make sure that board members are prepped and primed that, oh, by the way, there's a new slide being introduced this quarter. Surprises in the boardroom equals bad. So, all right, I am going to say we are done with user questions. We skipped only a couple here, and one of them was Ross, which sucks. I want to get back to Ross. We'll, we'll, Sorry, just, Ross. we'll get Ross out on the show if we can get him on the show. Um so I got one last question for you, which I believe you answered on the last show. I think this was already the question du jour the last time you were on. Uh, it may not have been. Uh, I used to ask a different question. Now I'm asking every every uh, guest, what is something you learned outside of cybersecurity that has benefited you in cybersecurity? Oof, that's a long list. So hopefully I don't pick the same thing I did last time. I didn't go back and, and re-listen. But, you know, I think the thing that I would... I would say I learned, and this album will use parenting, which is the predictability of your responses mm -hmm. is really important. People are going to break the rules. Yes. You should know the consequences of breaking the rules and exactly how you're going to respond. You know, you should not flip off the handle, whether it's, you know, your kid who decided to sneak cookies or somebody who decided not to patch something mm -hmm. in a sense. It's, it's kind of the same problem. Like 
you have some rules that you're in charge of telling people, you know, what the norms are. And when they don't meet the norms, they should kind of know what's going to happen. I personally like going with the, I'm disappointed in you approach of, I know you can do better. I know it's really hard, but let's work on this. But they should totally understand how you're going to behave. Because again, you don't really want to surprise people that you're trying to build relationships with. Yep. I like it. That's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. Well, Andy Ellis, CISO at Orca, managing partner at YL Ventures, CISO about the globe, just back from Jamaica. Thank you so much for coming again on Down to the Ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>